you know, the same people that went up to Michigan, okay, and did all that forensic stuff on the computers, and they sent their team down to Coffee County, Georgia, and they scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single ballot. They imaged the hard drives? Yes. How in the world did you get permission to do that? Well, there's a good question. Here's another. Why aren't the feds looking into it? Or are they? And maybe we just don't know about it. Could that be? We'll discuss. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, and Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites... Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And as usual these days, at the uh, start of a new week, we typically uh, find ourselves these days doing sort of triage already, right off the bat, to cover and or not cover a boatload of breaking news from over the weekend and into the start of the week. And yes, today is no different. After the sudden closure and takeover by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, uh, the takeover of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday and the subsequent closure of New York-based Signature Bank on Sunday, the feds have announced that all depositor money will be backstopped by the federal government in hopes, uh, apparently, of preventing similar problems and similar runs on other regional banking institutions. The failures appear largely based on various market forces, including a drop in stock market values of tech startup companies of late that coupled with and I don't know if actually if, if, if you can even call this a market force, but the Fed's fast increases in interest rates in recent months purportedly to help lower inflation. 
by forcing the economy into a recession. All of that resulted in a bit of a bank run last week at Silicon Valley Bank and similar jitters at other regional banks which had lobbied during the Trump administration to loosen regulations and oversight for smaller banks, regulations that had been put in place specifically in response to the 2008 banking crisis. Larger, more diversified national banks are still theoretically under those oversight restrictions by the Fed, but these regional banks uh, managed back in 2018 to lobby for less oversight, which, by the way, might have prevented the various chains of events that led to SVBs and signatures closure by the feds uh, and their subsequent uh, federal takeover and, yes, backstopping. President Biden Speaking from the White House on Monday morning, attempted to calm jittery investors and bank customers by assuring them that deposits in the nation's banking system are safe. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Treasury Secretary Yellen and a team of banking regulators have taken action, immediate action. And here are the highlights. First, all customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. No losses. Will, and I want this is an important point. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Because of the actions of that, because of the actions that our regulators have already taken, every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. Second, the management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Third, investors in the banks will not be protected. They knowingly took a risk, and when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. And fourth, there are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one, in my no one is above the law. And finally, we must reduce the risk of this happening again. During the Obama-Biden administration, we put in place tough requirements on banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including the Dodd-Frank law to make sure that the crisis we saw in 2008 would not happen again. Unfortunately, the last administration rolled back some of these requirements. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again and to protect American jobs and small businesses. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. Let me also assure you, we will not stop at this. We'll do whatever is needed. That was President Biden at the White House on Monday trying to calm the ongoing concerns at a growing list of regional banks today. Of course, uh, while some may be reassured, it's, it's, uh, it's always sort of difficult to get full confidence when a president feels it necessary to address the nation to say the banking system is safe. 
nothing to worry about, Desi Doyen. Did <laughs> did you feel better with that? Uh, not really. I you know, I, I know that they have a vested interest in saying everything is safe to avoid a further uh, run on the banks. Yeah. But I do. I also want to note just the the parallel from the deregulation in the banking industry that can be tied directly to this failure of this uh, Silicon Valley bank. Very similar to the deregulation that uh, contributed to the East mm-hmm. Palestine train disaster yeah. during the Trump administration. They deregulated and it led to another problem. So and during the Trump, I'm, I'm noticing a, a pattern. A pattern, here. yes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, the well, I'm not sure, but we'll see if the Republicans start demanding that the uh, Biden administration uh, b- regulate these banks, keep them, keep this sort of thing from happening. Yeah. Not, like they did with the trains. Not holding my breath. Uh, also over the weekend and into Monday, the uh, Biden administration has now approved the massive Willow oil drilling project in Alaska, angering climate advocates. Uh, Pleasing, however, a bipartisan coalition of Alaska lawmakers uh, and some native tribes and setting the stage for a court challenge with environmentalists who oppose the expansion of fossil fuel projects that are seemingly in conflict with the Biden administration's own climate agenda. Desi Doyen, I know you have been following this story for a while and we'll have more on one of our Green News reports later this week, no doubt. But what is the skinny today as of this hour? This is a big announcement. Yes, this is this is pretty huge. Um, a little bit of background. The Willow Project is a decades long proposed oil drilling project mm-hmm. in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve. That is on the North Slope. It's owned by the federal government. It's public lands of uh, the Biden administration, though at the same time, also announced new limits on Arctic drilling in an apparent effort to strike a political balance between these two very major concepts. So Mm -hmm. by the administration's own estimates, if all of the oil in the Willow project is burned, it would generate enough oil to release more than 9 million metric tons of planet warming carbon pollution Mm -hmm. every single year. Mm -hmm. And that's equivalent to adding 2 million gas-powered cars to the roads every year. Now, remember, that is over a 30-year period, and that is if the project is fully exploited. But the approval is a victory for Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation and a coalition of Alaska Native tribes and mm-hmm. groups who hail the drilling venture as a much-needed new source of revenue and jobs for the region. Um, but on the other hand, it is, as you say, a major blow to Biden's climate agenda and to climate groups and Alaska Natives who have opposed the Willow Project for years now yep. and have argued that it will hurt uh, President Biden's climate goals. And it also poses health and environmental risks to the tribes that live in the area. So the uh, venture was approved by the Interior Department with a slightly smaller footprint. It has just three drilling pads versus the ones that I think it was five that ConocoPhillips had asked for. Mm ConocoPhillips is also going to relinquish rights to drill on nearly 70,000 acres of existing leases in the area. Mm-hmm. And the administration apparently felt that, uh, at least according to CNN, that it was constrained legally and that it didn't have very many options to cancel or further curtail the Willow Project. And that's because it had already been approved by the Trump administration. And so the Biden administration determined that legally courts would not have let them fully reject the project. So, you know, that is 
is, as I said, Mm -hmm. balanced somewhat by Biden on Monday, also announcing sweeping new protections for federal lands and waters in Alaska. (laughs) Um, So the White House made the entire U.S. Arctic Ocean off limits to future oil and gas leasing um, in that section of the federal waters. Mm -hmm. The Interior Department said it's going to issue new rules to protect more than 13 million acres in the Federal National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. That's on land from drilling. Mm -hmm. And so in all, the administration is going to protect about 16 million acres from future fossil fuel leasing. So it's kind of like this is the last one out of the gate. Yeah, good news. Right. This is the last. Okay, you can do you could drill here, but that's it. No more. Nobody gets any more after this. In theory, we will see. Uh, Apparently plenty to love and hate, I think, by all sides in this matter, it seems. Uh, And as noted, I I think I suspect we'll have more on that as well in the uh, in coming days, if nothing else, in our Green News report on tomorrow's broadcast. Thank you, Des. Uh, But because, well, as the Oscars on Sunday proved, once again, we now live in a universe of everything, everywhere, all at once. I want to focus on something uh, entirely different today, though it's uh, something that we like to cover a lot on the broadcast and will likely have reason to do so more and more, I, I think, maybe I hope, in the days and weeks and months ahead. Uh, and that is specifically accountability. You know, one of the things that we have never been able to let go of on this show is what happened after the George W. Bush Dick Cheney administration, which was, at least at the time, as corrupt an administration as this nation had ever seen by far. Barack Obama and his Department of Justice, they came into office and basically uh, and at times literally said, well, we want to look forward, not back. So most of the serious crimes of the Bush-Cheney administration, sadly, were never prosecuted, and the criminals were essentially let off the hook. It was and has been appalling, as I have pointed out now for, well, what are we at now, Uh, 8 to 12, about 14 years at this point. And that in and of itself, that was bad enough that the criminals were were never held to account, including, yes, the war criminals, that they got away with it. But even worse was the message that it sent, specifically that there would be no accountability for much of anything by the powerful. That, of course, paved the way for the subsequent most corrupt administration, hands down, that the uh, nation would ever see, that of Donald J. Trump. Everyone got away with it last time under under Bush, so why not this time? And as long as there was to be no accountability for anything, any and all corruption was apparently on the table. That's the message that was sent after Bush and Cheney left office and Obama did not take the action that he should have. And that is how Trump and his administration and his entire team and anyone close to him, including his entire party, has essentially behaved ever since. Like they can't be touched, like they were all untouchable. And and justifiably, they felt that way, given all that we'd seen come before them. You know, the last time an unspeakably corrupt Republican administration held the White House and got away with pretty much absolutely everything. So while we still have a long way to go... Uh, I want to say that at least uh, it is somewhat encouraging to see that this administration, this Department of Justice currently, 
along with prosecutors and court systems all over the country, have not been quite as willing to let the crimes of the previous administration and all of their supporters go without punishment this time around. As noted, there's still a long way to go and a lot of accountability, in my opinion, still to come. But the get-out-of-jail-free cards are not quite as free-flowing as they were following Bush-Cheney. The news late last week, for example, out of New York, that appears uh, to be that the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg may be in the final stages before bringing a criminal indictment against a former U.S. president for the first time in American history. Well, that's just one sign of this. The criminal indictment in New York, if it comes, will reportedly be in relation to Donald Trump's hush money payoffs before and after the 2016 election, meant to silence news about his affair with porn star Stormy Daniels. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, the central witness in the Stormy Stormy Daniels hush money scandal, He testified on Monday afternoon in New York to a Manhattan grand jury that is investigating that scheme. That, coupled with prosecutors' invitation to Donald Trump himself to testify this week, well, that suggests not only that Manhattan District Attorney Bragg is uh, is closing in on a charging decision at this point, but that he is very likely to seek an indictment of Donald Trump. According to AP, quote, Michael Cohen has been meeting regularly with Manhattan prosecutors in recent weeks, including a day-long session Friday to prepare for his grand jury appearance. The Wall Street, Wall Street Journal notes that, quote, once Mr. Cohen testifies, the grand jury will have heard from every person who played a key role in the hush money deal and its aftermath. That after the New York Times reported last week that, uh, quote, it would be highly unusual for a prosecutor in a high profile white collar case to go through a weeks long presentation of evidence and question nearly every relevant witness without intending to seek an indictment. There are also likely to be criminal indictments coming out of Atlanta soon as well, where the Fulton County District Attorney there, Fonnie Willis, has been probing a broad conspiracy, including Donald Trump's attempts to steal the 2020 presidential election that he lost in Georgia by a little over 11,000 votes. And, of course, special counsel Jack Smith is probing federal charges for both the huge conspiracy related to Trump's attempts to steal the election nationally in multiple ways, including via the insurrection that a bipartisan majority of the U.S. Senate found was incited by Donald Trump at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And that special counsel, Jack Smith, is also uh, looking at uh, federal charges for Trump's felony crimes involved in stealing thousands of pages of records from the White House, including some of them highly classified after he left office. Those, of course, are just some of the big cases that we are looking at and waiting for accountability on. There are many other such crimes, both big and small, dealing uh, directly with Trump and with his colleagues who are also thought uh, who also thought that they were untouchable for so many years. But they are not. And a lot of them are facing accountability. Finally, 
And to that end, I've, I've got a number of accountability-related news items that I uh, have wanted, I wanted to hit uh, from over the last few days um, before I was going to get to my guest today to discuss a huge piece of this accountability puzzle involving the actions of Team Trump following the 2020 presidential election that still seem to be missing from the federal probes that we have been trying to highlight on this program, we have been trying to... Uh, to raise and get uh, bring attention to that apparently, as my guest uh, will discuss with me momentarily, uh, this accountability, this investigation is not happening on this particular issue. Susan Greenhall will be here uh, momentarily to discuss a major security concern from voting system experts and about the letter that she recently received from the FBI in response to those concerns, specifically uh, an investigation that does not seem to seem to be taking place, but absolutely should be taking place before we get anywhere near the 2024 presidential election. Now, with that in mind, uh, I wanted to share a few thoughts from one story over the weekend that some have been reporting as if it was a, a demand for accountability. But really, when you look at it, it wasn't. When you read the details of it, as CNN reported on Sunday afternoon, Former Vice President Mike Pence made his most blistering comments yet about former President Donald Trump's role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol during remarks Saturday evening at the annual Gridiron uh, Club, the annual Gridiron Club dinner in Washington, D.C., which traditionally features politicians who make jokes about notable Washington figures, etc. The Gridiron, Gridiron Dinner. Since it's not uh, captured on camera, it, uh, it tends to feature politicians and humor that's a little bawdier, a little sharper than what we tend to see, for example, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is generally carried live as it happens on C-SPAN. So the gridiron is a little different that way in that there is no cameras recording it. So I can't play you what he actually said. I'm counting on the way CNN has covered it here. But on Saturday, Pence began his remarks at the dinner, poking fun with lighthearted comments, they say, directed at Donald Trump, at President Joe Biden, at Vice President Harris, uh, several of the Republicans who are expected to run for president in 2024, like DeSantis and Haley and so forth. He then took a serious tone, says CNN, noting the attack on the Capitol was, quote, one thing I haven't joked about. And he called January 6th, quote, a tragic day. Pence rebuked Trump for his role in the 2021 attack, where Trump had incited his supporters to, quote, fight like hell at the Capitol that day, after which they set up a mock gallows and they chanted about hanging Mike Pence as they smashed their way in to the U.S. Capitol. Pence said that Trump was, quote, wrong for claiming that Pence had the authority to overturn the results that day, the results of the 2020 election in his role presiding over Congress, saying, quote, history will hold Donald Trump accountable, unquote. But here's the deal. While history almost certainly will hold Trump accountable, that is decidedly not how a nation of laws work. We don't wait for history to hold someone accountable. 
According to multiple reports from the Saturday dinner, Pence scolded those who have downplayed the people who entered the Capitol on January 6th as tourists and peaceful sightseers. Quote, tourists, he said, don't injure 140 police officers by sightseeing. Tourists, he said, don't break down doors to get to the Speaker of the House or voice threats against public officials. Pence chastised Republicans who minimized the insurrection. This just days after Fox News' Tucker Carlson aired deceptively edited security camera footage from inside the Capitol on January 6th, attempting to defend the mob and downplay what happened that day. Quote from Pence. Make no mistake about it, what happened that day was a disgrace, and it mocks decency to portray it in any other way, he said at the dinner. Pence also said, and here's the critical part, quote, The American people have a right to know what took place at the Capitol on January 6th, and I expect members of the Fourth Estate, the media, to continue to do their job. But those comments from Mike Pence, come just days after his attorneys filed a motion just last week asking a judge to block a federal grand jury subpoena for his testimony related to January 6th, with Pence arguing that it was, quote, unconstitutional and unprecedented to be asked uh, to ask the vice president to come in and testify to a grand jury about a former president. Now, it may be unprecedented, but there's nothing unconstitutional at all about Pence giving testimony about what happened that day. He was the witness to a crime. So there's nothing unconstitutional about it if he truly gives a damn, as he claims, about accountability. During his remarks, Pence repeatedly praised the media's coverage of January 6th and said he was able to carry out his role in certifying the election, quote, in part because of the media's real-time coverage of the insurrection. Quote, we were able to stay at our post in part because you stayed at your post, said Pence to the media gathered at this dinner. The American people know what happened that day because you never stopped reporting, said Pence. For what you do to preserve and strengthen this great democracy, you have my heartfelt thanks, he said, and I know the thanks of a grateful nation. Thanks for what you do to preserve freedom, he continued. The former president also pledged to, quote, never, ever diminish the injuries sustained, the lives lost or the heroism of law enforcement on that tragic day. But here's the thing. I personally believe Mike Pence, in refusing to leave the Capitol that day on January 6th, despite serious pressure to do so from his own Secret Service detail, I believe that Mike Pence really was a hero to our democracy during those critical minutes, hours that day on January 6th. Had he left, as his Secret Service agents had tried to get him to do, they had tried to get him into a car to drive him away, claiming this was for his own safety. Had he done so, I think we might be looking at a very different nation today. Because we know that Chuck Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who was then the president pro tem in the Senate, he was prepared to take the whole thing over, to oversee the Electoral College certification ceremony. And he very well may have tossed the, uh, tossed the results out, tossed the matter back to the House or back to the states, as Trump had been hoping that Pence would do that day. So to his credit... 
Pence did not. He did not leave. He stayed. And I know that some of my progressive friends who, who disagree with me about whether, you know, Pence deserves credit there or not. Uh, well, I think he absolutely does. Absolutely does. Had he left, we might as well have said uh, goodbye to democracy at this point as as I see it. I believe that he, it was absolutely heroic what he did, in fact, to save democracy in America in those few hours and minutes and hours. But to say now that accountability will be brought by history, by history, and that it should be up to the media to continue reporting on what happened when Matt, Mike Pence knows stuff that nobody else in the nation knows about what happened other than Donald Trump, the guy who incited the first ever domestic insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which was just a hair's breadth from overturning the U.S. government and American democracy itself. To say that it is the job of history and the media, the fourth estate, to tell the story while Mike Pence is attempting to legally refuse to, to do so himself, well, attempting to not testify to law enforcement officials in response to a federal grand jury subpoena on these matters, frankly, it is utterly and specifically cowardly. And yes, I would argue it is un-American. If he truly cared about accountability, frankly, he would have volunteered to testify to the grand jury. He wouldn't have had to wait for a subpoena to do so. While constitutional law experts are, are generally scoffing at Pence's claim that the speech and debate clause of the Constitution prevents him as president of the Senate from somehow being able to testify about very real and violent crimes in which people were sent to hang him at the Capitol. I mean, whether there is any constitutional legitimacy or not to that legal argument, uh, nothing prevents Mike Pence from testifying, from telling what he witnessed at this crime scene. He is choosing to not do so, or at least he is fighting to not do so. And there is nothing brave or courageous about that. It's both pathetic and, frankly, 100 percent political. Not unlike President Biden's decision over the weekend to allow new oil drilling in Alaska while protecting millions of other acres uh, of the Arctic at the same time. It's a political decision, a political calculation. But in Pence's case, the survival of democracy itself may be on the line at a time when Pence is pretending that this is not about politics. It absolutely is. It, it, it is absolutely shameful what Mike Pence is doing. Especially when he's been out there, by the way, talking about what happened to the media and at speeches. And yes, in a book that he is selling and making money off of. He just won't talk to federal prosecutors where accountability actually happens or is supposed to happen. So if you saw those headlines over the weekend to the effect of, you know, Mike Pence makes his toughest remarks to date against the former president, well, do not buy it. He may have been courageous and did the right thing on January 6th. I believe he did. But he is decidedly not doing the right thing for the country right now as he is trying to protect the former president as part of gearing up for his own run for the GOP presidential nomination in 2024. 
Now, as noted, there were a couple of other accountability stories uh, of some good news, some real accountability brought against several Republican allies of Trump uh, late last week and over the weekend that I had also hoped to cover today, but I'm going to have to put them off, hopefully, until tomorrow's broadcast. Uh, thanks to the breaking news today and over the weekend about the banking system and the uh, decision to uh, drill for oil in Alaska. Because I've got a, a guest standing by to discuss another lack of accountability story from the federal government, at least so far, at least seemingly, concerning both what happened after the 2020 election and what it may mean for the 2024 election as voting system experts like my next guest fear. And as a letter she recently received from the FBI would seem to suggest. Yep, it's uh, still up to the fourth estate in cases like this, apparently. So let's take a quick break and we will be back with the entire stunning and even maddening story that you probably are not hearing about elsewhere with Susan Greenhall of freespeechforpeople.org right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So if you have been following the Bradcast over the last year or so now, you know that we broke some news on this program, or at least uh, we're the first to play it on air. The audio from a phone call out of Georgia from an Atlanta-based businessman by the name of Scott Hall, who called a... Um, Frequent guest on our program, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, and basically, for reasons that are still not entirely clear, seemingly confessed to participating in a fairly massive criminal conspiracy. Maryland's coalition has had a long-running lawsuit against the state of Georgia seeking to replace its new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by Dominion Voting, and forced on every voter at every precinct in the state, whether they like it or not, thanks to Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. She's been trying to get those systems replaced with verifiable hand-marked paper ballots. Now, those new systems were first used during the 2020 presidential election after Marilyn Mark's lawsuit had resulted in a federal judge essentially finding the state's old 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by Diebold to be so insecure and so unverifiable 
uh, that they were actually unconstitutional and they were barred from the state. In 2018, the judge ordered those systems barred across the entire state of Georgia and in their place, while voting system and, and computer security experts had begged Raffensperger to replace them with hand-marked paper ballots verifiable ones. Instead, Raffensperger chose Dominion's terrible touchscreen ballot marking devices instead, which Maryland's ongoing federal lawsuit has been challenging ever since, hoping to see those machines barred for essentially the same reason that the Diebold machines were barred by the same federal judge. Now, Though there remains zero evidence that uh, the 2020 presidential elections in Georgia run on those systems or anywhere else was somehow stolen from Donald Trump, after the election, his supporters in several different states secretly underwent efforts to make surreptitious copies of those voting systems, their software, to purportedly to find secret code or algorithms that these MAGA right-wingers were duped into believing was somehow used to steal the election for Joe Biden. And at some point, perhaps thinking that she might be on uh, his side in this matter, that Atlanta businessman, Scott Hall, called Marilyn Marks and essentially confessed to an entire conspiracy to make copies of the Dominion Voting and Tabulation System software in rural, Republican-leaning Coffee County, Georgia. That effort followed similar schemes that also appear to have taken place in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, maybe even Nevada. Here's a piece of that phone call that Marilyn Marks was smart enough to record when she realized what was going on from Scott Hall and that we have shared on this program a number of times in the past. But here's a reminder. You know, I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect all of those computers. I went down there, we scanned every freaking ballot. You know, the same people that went up to Michigan, okay, and did all that forensic stuff on the computers, and they sent their team down to Coffee County, Georgia, and they scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single ballot. They imaged the hard drives? Yes. How in the world did you get permission to do that? We basically had the entire elections committee there. Okay. And they said, we give you permission. Go for it. <laughs> Go for it. The entire Board of Elections in Republican Coffee County, Georgia, gave permission to a, a bunch of Republican conspiracy theorists calling themselves computer and voting system experts, which they are definitely not, gave them permission to make secret copies, not just of the voting machines, but of the sensitive proprietary uh, central election management software. The keys to the kingdom, if you will, on these voting systems, according to experts. Now, thanks to Marilyn Mark's lawsuit, allowing her to take depositions from the various people involved in this scheme. And thanks to some very good reporting from some uh, a couple of reporters at Washington Post and Associated Press. We now know that the scheme in Coffee County was apparently paid for and coordinated by Trump lawyer Sidney Powell and was headed up in part by a guy named Doug Logan. 
If his name sounds familiar, he is the uh, head of the now defunct and discredited cyber ninjas who would later carry out that ridiculous so-called post-election forensic audit of the voting systems in Maricopa County. That's Phoenix, Arizona. Though that you remember that audit ended up confirming Joe Biden's victory over Donald Trump in the battleground state. So in addition to Georgia and Michigan, as you hear Scott Hall mention, Similar schemes were believed to have been carried out in Pennsylvania, and as we've been also reporting in Mesa County, Colorado, where that county's former county clerk, Tina Peters, has been charged with seven felonies and three misdemeanors related to sneaking in to the secure voting system room in the middle of the night with two accomplices, one of whom she made a fake ID for, turning off the security cameras and making copies of those systems, those Dominion voting election management systems as well. The software from which was released to the public at the same time that Peters was speaking on stage at an election fraud conspiracy conference sponsored by the pillow guy, Mike Lindell. The leak of that sensitive software just weeks before the statewide recall election for governor here in California, where several counties use that same software. Well, that was enough to freak out a bunch of cybersecurity and voting system experts leading them to beg California's secretary of state at the time to take special precautions in that election because of the release of this software code. Long story short, while there have been some state probes of what appear to be a broad conspiracy to vote to uh, breach voting systems in several states around the country after the 2020 election, there appears to be no coordinated effort at the federal level to somehow either contain the damage or bring accountability to the conspirators, not by federal law enforcement officials, at least according to a letter recently sent by the FBI to one of those alarmed voting system experts. As the L.A. Times' Sarah Wire reported late last week, as news trickled out of the former president uh, trickled trickled out that former President Trump's supporters had organized to access federally protected election machines and copied sensitive information and software, Election expert Susan Greenhall waited for FBI or Justice Department leaders to announce an investigation, said Greenhall, quote, it just seems so stunning that we thought, well, of course, there's going to be a big reaction and the government is going to investigate. When months passed with no such announcement, Greenhall and over a dozen other election experts wrote a 14 page letter to the Justice Department In December of 2022, outlining what they called a multi-state conspiracy to copy voting software and asking the agency to open an investigation. So Greenhall was baffled when she received a terse, non-committal response from the FBI a month later that seemed to indicate no action had been or would be taken at the federal level. Very short letter. Dear Ms. Greenhall, the letter that I'm holding in my hands uh, reads, uh, thank you for your December 12, 2022 letter to the director, Christopher Wray, requesting an investigation into the alleged multi-state plot to unlawfully access, copy and share voting system software directed and funded by Ms. Sidney Powell and other attorneys associated with the Trump campaign. We appreciate hearing your concerns on this issue. The Federal Bureau of Investigation referred your letter to our Criminal Investigation Division, the Public Corruption and Civil Rights Section, for review, and we are pleased to respond. Though the FBI may provide investigative support to state and local authorities, a formal request for assistance must be made by the investigating authority. 
Should the local authorities make such a request, the FBI will assist as deemed appropriate. If you have additional information you'd like to provide, you may contact the FBI's Atlanta field office located at blah, blah, blah. I appreciate your bringing this matter to our attention. I hope this information will be helpful to you. Sincerely, R. Joseph Rothrock, Section Chief of the Public Corruption and Civil Rights Section at the FBI. Now, just months before the 2024 presidential primaries, the L.A. Times reports that it is unclear whether any federal agency has any plans for a comprehensive investigation of all of this and the efforts to gain access to election systems. Election and law enforcement experts are uh, concerned that the stolen information might be used to interfere with future elections and that the FBI and Justice Department may be sending the wrong signal to those responsible if agencies do not investigate. Without a national investigation, said Greenhall, quote, we're never going to know what the overall plan was here. I would add, we'll never know what the overall plan is. Joining us now is Susan Greenhall, a longtime election integrity and transparency expert and advocate, as well as a friend of this program who serves as senior advisor on election security at freespeechforpeople.org. Susan Greenhall, thank you for joining us once again today on the broadcast. Thank you for having me, Brad. Uh, do we, Let me uh, start here, Susan. We have been reporting on these uh, various breaches around the country uh, on Bradcast, on the Brad blog, going on two years now, most notably uh, the one in Mesa County, uh, where former county clerk Tina Peters is facing charges, and this astounding breach in Coffee County. Before we talk about what is and isn't being done by law enforcement, why is this uh, such an important matter as you and uh, about 14 other longtime cybersecurity and voting system experts see it and have been trying to tell the FBI? Why are you all so alarmed about what's happening here? Well, the, the people that got the software um, seem to be interested in further disrupting elections. They already tried once to disrupt an election and in, impact the results in 2020, mm-hmm. and we're seeing that, that this is continuing. In fact, the software that was taken unlawfully in Coffee County, Georgia, showed up at CPAC last week in a presentation of, uh, by, by a bunch of um, conspiracy theorists um, making a lot of unfounded and really uh, disturbing and, and false claims about elections um, in it. So we're, we can see the software already being used for disinformation campaigns, mm-hmm. um, but it could actually be used for much worse, like to reverse engineer it and make malware to impact um, and potentially corrupt an election. You know, I've spoken, of course, with uh, Marilyn Marks about all of this as well in great detail, and a number of the experts uh, who signed on to that letter to the FBI uh, on and off air, as it seemed originally that this effort was simply to find, uh, you know, by these right-wingers, to find the supposed code that was used to steal the election in 2020 or evidence that it was stolen and so forth. Nobody has apparently been able to find that evidence in those systems, but and that would you would think would be the end of the story, case closed. But is the concern here by you and these other experts that what they have learned in the copies of this software actually can be used in some fashion to hack the 2024 presidential election? Yeah, um, absolutely. They, that's something that could be done. Uh, and that's not me um, uh, 
opining about that. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Georgia Secretary of State's uh, chief information officer in testimony in the lawsuit said before he knew that this had actually happened, before it had been confirmed, he had said, well, it would be terrible if this happened. It would give you a roadmap of precisely how to hack the system. So um, we know that th- that even the Georgia Secretary of State's office understands how perilous this is. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they are not um, taking the appropriate action, as, and as neither and neither is the FBI or the federal agencies associated with this. Well, uh, th- there is an investigation, obviously, going on in Colorado by state uh, officials and the attorney general there. We know that because, as I mentioned, uh, Colorado former Mesa County uh, clerk Tina Peters has been charged with uh, 10 crimes related to this. She was found guilty just last week, a week or so, uh, on, on a related charge as well. So there is uh, some state efforts going on. And even though that guy uh, who contacted you from the FBI, uh, Joseph Rothrock, says that it would require uh, a state authority, state or local authority, I guess, to request assistance. The L.A. Times reports that the Georgia State Elections Board made such a request publicly announcing in September of 22 uh, that it had asked for the FBI's assistance uh, to look into the Coffee County matter. Did Were they lying or uh, who's lying here <laughs> as far as if they asked for this uh, from the FBI? Why is the FBI saying uh, we haven't been asked? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. We, we're trying to figure that out because, first of all, the FBI's response is sort of doesn't make any sense because we know that there are instances where some local authority may be corrupt. Mm-hmm. may not be properly investigating crimes. Maybe somebody's civil rights are violated or someone was improperly killed in police custody. And the FBI doesn't wait for those authorities to invite them in to come and investigate generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that the FBI has the authority to investigate you know, potential federal crimes without being invited in by the local authorities. Um, but we do know also that they were, in fact, invited in Georgia to come in. And, and one very interesting piece of in, uh, information that Maryland's lawsuit uncovered was the contract that Sidney Powell had uh, for this project, which showed that it was the Georgia piece was one piece of a multi-state um, uh, contract that mm-hmm. included Michigan and Nevada. Mm-hmm. So we know it was a something that was being directed and funded from Sidney Powell in her capacity as an attorney for Trump into multiple states. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason we said the feds need to get in, and yeah. that's exactly the same reason the state election board said is that other states are implicated, and this seems to be uh, something that the feds should get involved in. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so all... we really can't make head or tails of why they're, they're refusing. Yeah, I mean, it's already, it's it's, it's clearly a multi-state crime that would seem to trigger federal uh, jurisdiction. And then let's not forget that I I believe it was during the Obama administration that the nation's election systems themselves were designated as critical infrastructure to be protected by the federal government. So it seems like there is every reason that they should 
be investigating here. Are we sure? I, I read most of that uh, terse letter from the FBI. Are we sure that they are not investigating or maybe, you know, a lot of times the federal officials say we, you know, we can't speak whether we're, uh, we are or aren't uh, investigating. Could there be an investigation going on, but they don't wish to uh, announce that publicly? Uh, you know, I we had hoped, actually, that that would be the type of response we would get, something like, we can't comment on an ongoing investigation. This one, this re- response that we got was much more alarming. But we have other evidence. So I have put in public records requests to the county, Coffee County, where this occurred, for any communications that they've had from any of the federal agencies or from the Department of Justice or mm-hmm. the Special Counsel, the FBI, and they have responded that they have had no communication from them, and that was as of a few weeks ago, maybe almost a month ago now. Um, We also have depositions taken from people who were involved in this incident, including Doug Logan. Those were taken late in November when they were asked under oath in the deposition, have you been contacted by the federal, by any federal investigators, the FBI or DOJ, special Mm -hmm. counsel? No, he said um, under oath, no, he hasn't been um, investigated. So in addition to the letter, we have some other affirmative evidence that they are not investigating, and there's zero evidence that they are investigating. Oh, and there's one more data point in that the subpoenas that we have seen go out from the special counsel, none of them seem to be pointed at getting information regarding the copying of the election software. And yet, uh, one other data point, there's sort of a lot of conflict. we got to not only connect the dots, but try to figure them out here. But uh, in September, the uh, L.A. Times notes the FBI obtained a warrant to seize the cell phone of MyPillow executive and Trump ally Mike Lindell. Lindell said on his online TV show that agents had questioned him about Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk who was indicted for accusa- on accusations that she helped an outsider gain access to those election systems, um, allowing that sensitive data to get out. Doesn't that indicate that the feds are looking into this, Susan? Um, well, they're, they're maybe looking into Mike Lindell and his involvement with Mesa, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're looking at what happened in coffee. I, um, the broader and, conspiracy, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and potentially coordinated conspiracy, because mm-hmm. what we learned from Maryland's lawsuit discovery is that the software images were uploaded to a share file site and then downloaded by an unknown number of people, and then, and where they went from that point on, we have no idea. Into how many people's hands, to whether they're here or abroad, what their intent is. All we know is that people showed up at CPAC last week and had copies of the software from Coffee County. So um, it has gone into the netherworld of the election denier space, mm-hmm. and we don't know what they're planning to do with it and what they're doing with it right now. And again, this is, uh, you know, this has this is has been deemed critical federal infrastructure. Obviously, we know uh, in state after state, the software has been breached. We don't even actually know, I I don't think, how many states this has happened in. You mentioned Nevada. We've heard uh, talk about Nevada before. Do we have any evidence of where in Nevada this actually or if it actually 
uh, took place if it was breached as well in Nevada, Susan? We're, what we know from the lawsuit apparently is they were paid to go to Nevada and then they got there and they weren't able to get in. But then some of these um, people in the election denier space have claimed that they had software from Nevada. So what happened there, we don't know. And this is, and, and you know, and you take a look at the count of Georgia. It really was only by sort of weird luck that Marilyn found out about this, and and it was uncovered because of her because she actually had an ongoing lawsuit that had the opportunity for discovery, mm-hmm. and they could take depositions. Had that not happened, we never would have heard about Georgia because the Secretary of State in Georgia was very interested in not talking about this at all and dismissing it and disregarding it. So. Um, where else has is this happened in other states where we didn't have the the you know right lightning to strike at the right moment for it to ha- for it to become uncovered and this is why this is something the federal government should be investigating um, on behalf of the American people to protect yeah. our elections. Yeah, you would think, and that it shouldn't rely on local investigations, whether they have asked the FBI, the feds, to come in or not. Uh, there was word that Fonnie Willis, the uh, Fulton County, Georgia district attorney, that she was said to be investigating this as part of her conspiracy probe of Trump's attempt to steal the election in Georgia and the fake electors and uh, the Coffee County incident. But this does seem to be a federal issue. Uh, and... Boy, it's troubling, uh, to say the very least, that the FBI is not or doesn't seem to be investigating it. So I'm grateful, uh, Susan Greenhall, that you are out there making noise. We will uh, link, of course, to both uh, the FBI's letter to you and the original letter that brought that response, the 14 uh, or I'm sorry, the the. I can't remember how many pages, but from the uh, 14 cybersecurity experts asking for this investigation from the feds that they really need to keep doing. Keep making noise about it, Susan, because this is kind of insane the more I look into it. Yeah, (laughs) I think so, too. (laughs) Really appreciate your effort. Uh, Susan Greenhall can be found in her work at freespeechforpeople.org. They can be found on Twitter at FSFP, as in Free Speech for People. And you can find Susan uh, directly on the Twitters at S.E. Greenhall. Susan, always great speaking with you. I look look forward to doing it again in the uh, the not-too-distant future. Please stay on them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brad. You bet. Thanks for, for shining a light. Bye-bye. Got to be done. All right. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks. Uh, I got to get out to my producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Wendell Handy. Thank you, sir. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. I, uh, you can drop me email as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com via email, and you'll find me on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/slash donate.